0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. There's an old bit of folk wisdom that declares, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will be a path to your door. I'm not sure how many of you have had to use a mousetrap lately. In fact, some of you younger people may never have even seen one. Now in our house, the mouse traps have four paws and whiskers and shed a lot of fur all over everything. <laughs> I haven't used a mechanical mouse trap in years, but I suppose that that saying probably originates from a time when both houses and food containers weren't quite so well sealed as they are today, and both mice and the need for effective mouse traps were much more prevalent. The main idea behind that saying, though, of course, is that if you provide a product that people want, it's going to become quite popular and draw a lot of attention. Today, rather than building a better mousetrap, perhaps the world would beat a path to your door for a a better tablet computer or a better high-mileage car or, if we could produce such a thing, a better rain-making machine. In his time on Earth, Jesus was thought by many to have a better mousetrap, as it were. People flocked to him, driven by their perceptions that he could provide what they desired. Better health, abundant food, amazing signs and wonders, wisdom for living. Jesus had preached on many occasions prior to this in his ministry. His Sermon on the Mount was His first great discourse. Then there was the sending of the disciples on their first mission journeys. And finally, the telling of several parables. People wanted to hear what Jesus had to say for the most part, and the crowds grew, and they grew, and they grew. Certainly by saying the right things, by giving people the right words, Jesus had built a better mousetrap. Furthermore, Jesus had been performing great miracles, some of them restoring health to the infirm, some of them showing power over the things of nature like trees or storms. And just as we heard in last week's Gospel lesson and sermon, we also know that He had miraculously fed thousands and thousands of people, men, women, and children, from a very modest ration of just five loaves, and two fish. In fact, the words that begin our gospel lesson for today and immediately, those words at the beginning of our text are the very first words that follow the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had built a better mousetrap indeed. After this great miracle, however, he doesn't permit the world that had beaten the path to his doorstep to linger there. First, He sends His disciples off in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. Then He dismisses the crowds and He seeks solitude on a mountain that He might refresh Himself in prayer. These times of quiet reflection by Himself are quite telling about Jesus, really. They give us all the more understanding an even greater assurance that Jesus was indeed a flesh and blood human being, as well as being the eternally begotten Son of God. He needed these times to be refreshed in body and mind and in spirit. We would do well to remember and to contemplate this ourselves. We who are merely human cannot be completely healthy without the regular refreshment of being reconnected to God. It's not a matter of church attendance alone or personal devotions alone. Jesus did both. He faithfully kept the Sabbath by worshiping regularly in the community of believers. And he faithfully connected himself regularly to his Heavenly Father through private prayer. All of this may seem to be merely a a preamble, a, a setup for the real meat of this story, that of Jesus coming across the water to the disciples, struggling in the boat against the wind and the waves. But don't ignore or neglect what was happening there, or think that it is insignificant compared to the rest of the text. Jesus was using this time alone to rejuvenate His own spirit, as well as to set the stage for once again demonstrating His divine nature to His disciples. And so after several hours alone, and after His disciples had attempted to sail and to row across the lake, but had made only modest progress, Jesus comes to them. Note that He doesn't suddenly appear in the boat as He would later in the upper room in the days following His crucifixion and resurrection. No, this time He comes to them in a way that lets them fully see His approach the reaction to his coming is both normal and surprising at the same time. Quite normal in that seeing someone walking across the water that they knew to be quite deep is, well, it's not normal at all. It's completely unexpected. It's disturbing. It's unexplainable. Certainly if any of us saw someone walking across water, we'd be shocked and possibly quite frightened. On the other hand, it's also surprising for these men had spent considerable time with Jesus. They had been first-hand witnesses of many, many wonders and signs that were every bit as unnatural and unexpected as seeing someone walking on the water. Who else could it be? Who else would it be, after all, other than Jesus? Not twelve hours earlier, they had seen him turn a picnic basket into an HEB warehouse Providing food for 15 or 20,000 from a mere armful of supplies. It's not as though they had not seen him defy the laws of nature as we normally understand them, was it? But let's be fair and generous in our treatment of the disciples. We regularly love to to shake our heads and click our tongues at their continual unbelief and their, their outright density sometimes, especially at Peter. But we're no better, really. We often forget from week to week, from day to day, even from hour to hour, the miracles that we have witnessed too. For example, we often forget or we at least fail to continually appreciate in all of its fullness the cleansing that we received at the font, the binding there to Christ's death and resurrection, the rebirth and the eternal adoption He gave us all there. We also drop the ball on absolution letting our minds dwell on past wrongs done to us and done by us, long after they have been purged and eradicated by God's declaration of forgiveness and by the granting of His perfect divine forgetfulness in the confession of sins and faith. What's more, we fail to realize that while turning five loaves and two fish into a feast for thousands is miraculous indeed, the greater miracle is that a smidgen of bread and a sip of wine brings Jesus and all that He is and all that He means and all that He does, not just to us, but it even puts Christ, God Himself, within us. Those are the miracles that we experience. Those are the miracles that we ought to remember. Remember? Think of some of the language that Paul and the other apostles use to describe the effects of these miracles of word and sacrament. Since we are united with him in a death like his, we shall surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. Those are words that we hear and we trust about our baptismal burials. In Christ... God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We hear that about the ministry of the Word, including the absolution of our sins for Jesus' sake, and of the supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? All of these gifts, all of these miracles beyond compare, in them note how we are connected to God, reconciled to God, participate with God. Not by our own efforts, but by His coming to us and giving Himself to us, first on the cross, and now continually in all of these gifts. The world wants to beat a path to the door of the God that has the better mousetrap, the God that they think has what they want. But we don't have a God that requires us to seek Him out, to look for the right product that meets our desires. He is a God that comes to us and seeks us out, finds us in our time of greatest need, and provides the remedy for our greatest need. Jesus comes across the water to his disciples, and whether some of them realize it is him or not, they still tremble and cry out in fear. And well, they should, for whether it is an evil spirit or whether it is Jesus coming to them, they are sinful men. They have no hope in mounting a defense, either against the, a defense of the, against the prince of darkness, or justifying themselves before the king of light. Unlike a a ghost or a demon that Satan might send to torment them, however, Jesus is quick to address their fears. Note that once again it says, immediately. Jesus is ever ready to provide his comforting words of assurance to those who are filled with fear. Take heart, he says. That is, be of good courage. But why should they? They are facing the strange and the unknown in the darkness of the night, in a storm-tossed boat on a raging lake. They can take courage for the same reason that we can take courage, on account of the next words that our Lord speaks to them. Ego, I me. It is I. I am who I am. I am the one who has always been. I am the one who will always be. Do not be afraid. Perhaps they breathe the sigh of relief at hearing the Lord's voice through the howl of the wind. Yet Peter is not fully satisfied that the Lord has come to them. He wishes for more. He wishes to come to Jesus. The Lord invites him to do so, and Peter boldly steps out of the boat and onto the roiling waters. Things go well for a short time as Peter moves across the surface to Jesus. Once there, however, Peter makes a mistake. He loses focus. His fear of the things of creation begin to overshadow his trust in the Creator Himself. And his faith wanes. As he slips beneath the waters, he cries out in desperation, Lord, save me! And what happens then? What does Jesus do? Pay close attention now. immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of Peter. A gentle chiding of Peter for his doubt, a loving reminder that the Lord will never abandon His own, Jesus brings Peter into the boat. The Lord is now there with them. God has come to His people. Yahweh Emmanuel, Kyrios Theos Ego me. He is the Son of God indeed, and all is well. The storm is calmed and Jesus is worshipped. The account of Jesus walking across the water comes at a pivotal time in His life and ministry. He has done miracles before and He will do them again. He has also met opposition from people before and soon that opposition will continue and increase further. But something very fundamental is changing. It won't be too long in Matthew's Gospel account until Jesus reveals the true purpose of His coming. To suffer and to die on the cross, to atone for the sins of all mankind, and to be resurrected, to bestow upon all believers the gift of eternal life. When He foretells of His death and His resurrection, He will be opposed and even rejected by many. They have different wants and desires and they cannot see the dangers and the consequences of their true needs. They want a Savior that will provide them a better mousetrap. That's the Savior to whose doorstep they are willing to beat a path. They don't want, they don't understand a Savior who will allow Himself to be destroyed in order that the vermin of their sins might be exterminated forever. And it's not much different today, really. People look for gods and saviors that they can seek out and approach and come to. Like a product in a store display to be evaluated and purchased if it meets their approval. What God, what Savior has the better mousetrap, they wonder? Is He a God that makes me comfortable? Or a God that provides comfort? Is He a Lord that merely fills my belly with created things? Or the Lord that occupies my very soul with His own true presence. He's a Savior that only gives worldly comfort and merely rescues me from the perils of this life. Or a Savior who surrendered His very own life that in all perils and even in death we might not die eternally. The crowds had come to Jesus and gone away filled with food and filled with wisdom but not yet really understanding Jesus' message of the kingdom of God. Peter had attempted to come to Jesus, walking across the water, but he came up short and nearly perished. It works so much better when we stop trying to find the better mousetrap, when we stop trying to come to Jesus on our terms and we let Him come to us on His terms. We can't attempt to walk on the water as did Peter, But in the end, there will always be something that distracts us, the sin that makes us fall short of Jesus. We may get pretty far, but until Jesus reaches out and takes us by the hand, we're going to sink and die. How much more blessed we are when Jesus comes to us. He doesn't let us slip into the water to flail about, to founder, to sink in in our own doubts and our unbelief. Instead, He takes us and He puts us in the water Himself, killing the doubting unbeliever and pulling a new trusting soul from that watery grave, one to be His forever. We live, as the Catechism teaches us, to be His own, to live under Him in His Kingdom, to serve Him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. But what does that mean exactly? You see, after He has brought Himself to us, Part of us serving Him is to be sent to bring Him to others. There are many, many people out there who are seeking a better mousetrap when what they really need is an exterminator. Only Jesus can fully eradicate their infestation of sin. Only Jesus can remove the foul stench of their rotting corpses of iniquity. Don't let anyone struggle in their search, their quest to find a God, a Lord, a Savior. May Jesus come to them through you. And may He continue to bless you and comfort you with His forgiveness, His salvation, His everlasting presence. As He says each moment, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen.